0: I want to tell you a little story to introduce our, our teaching on today's parasha. Um, we'll have to leave the continent in our imaginations and uh, go back over a century for this story. Um, once, once upon a time, in um, in Georgia, Russia, there was a little boy whose name was Samuel. And Samuel actually lived within sight of Mount Ararat. Every morning when he'd wake up, if it was a clear day, he could he could go outside the door of their. They didn't have a very fancy house; it was more of a peasant's hovel. But he could go outside the door and he could look in the distance and he could see the the snowy peak of Mount Ararat. And um, Samuel Samuel grew up. um, He 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 met a beautiful girl named Hannah. Um, Hannah Hannah. Oh, Samuel's name was Samuel Planetin. Hannah's name, he met a girl named Hannah Holobov, uh, that's how they say it in Russian, related to Golobov, an English name that you may be familiar with. And uh, Samuel and Hannah got married. And they actually, they didn't stay in Georgia, Russia. They, uh, they were part of a minority Christian sect called the Dukhobors. And, uh, they were undergoing fierce persecution from the Russian government, the Czar, the, czar, the, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. They, they refused to worship images or incorporate icons and things in their worship. They were called iconobores. They were like the iconoclasts of Russia. And uh, because of the persecution, they had to leave. And, uh, you know, those dukebores were great farmers. They may have been illiterate. The only Bible they knew was the chapters and chapters of songs that they learned from singing. But they were great farmers. So Canada opened its doors to the dukebores. And Samuel and Hannah immigrated to Saskatchewan. And uh, they ended up settling in the Blaine Lake area. Well, they had a little girl named Annie. And, uh, I hope I'm getting all these names right. Anyway, Annie, Annie, um, Annie got married and, uh, had a daughter here in Canada whose name was Agatha. And, uh, she married a strapping young farmer named Bill. And that's my, that, those are my grandparents, my dad and Baba. So the, the story of, um, uh, the little boy, Sam, was it, um, Samuel, yeah. And, uh, and the girl he married, Hannah, is, is a true story. Um, they were my great-great grandparents. Yeah. So, in, in that regard, for some, when I read about Mount Ararat, I just like I feel this special little something personal about it, eh? Because I had great-great grandparents who lived within within sight of it. And um, I hope I got those family names right. <laughs> it's been a while since I reviewed my family tree. It's been a year or two, but you know, over the years, I have I've asked my grandparents for every single story they can tell me about the old country and about their family and every every name they know from however many generations back. And we do have it all written down. But anyway, <laughs> um, with regards to this parasha, parasha Noah, uh, we, we read this parasha with the Master's words ringing in our ears. Uh, Matthew twenty four thirty seven, The coming of the Son of Man, the, the Ben-Adam, the bar Anosh, will be just like the days of Noah. Um, similarly, Luke seventeen twenty six just as it happened in the days of noah so it will be also in the days of the son of man so you know we read this parsha and we have we have our rabbi's words ringing in our ears setting some overtones giving us a grid through which to view this parsha in that regard we discover very quickly that this parsha isn't just about past history on a global scale this parsha is about future history uh... this parsha is about the coming perfect firestorm that is going to envelop planet Earth. Um, I'll, I'll read you a couple snippets from this parish and just tell me if these will, don't apply to the uh, the catastrophic times leading up to the return of Mashiach. Um, 6 verse 13, the end of all flesh. I'm about to destroy them with the Earth. 6.17, all that is on the Earth will expire a 7 verse 4 I will blot out from the face of the earth every living thing that I have made uh, here's something interesting uh, the Hebrew term there for blotting out it has the idea if uh, I were to be writing something with a pencil and I made a mistake and I flip the pencil over and we've all done this you erase it right you blot it out where there was something there is no longer something um, actually, that term is the root of the modern Hebrew term to delete something on a computer. Yeah. So, uh, to, to what could this be compared? I have here my flash drive. We've probably all used flash drives. I used one this morning. Um, it could be compared to a man whose computer was so full of viruses, worms, and Trojan horses that he finally decided to delete the entire hard drive and reinstall everything. However, there was one special file that he wanted to keep. So what did he do? He cut and pasted it to his flash drive, plugged the flash drive into the computer, cut and pasted it to the flash drive, then he pulled the flash drive out of his computer until he finished the total deletion and reinstallation, and then he plugged his flash drive back into the computer, and he transferred the special file back to his computer. That is essentially the story of the Flood and the Ark. You could say this is like a picture of the Ark. The computer is a picture of planet Earth in an absolutely ruined state. This uh, this parsha is about global cataclysm, uh, a cataclysm in which the whole human race was rendered extinct, except for... One family that survived. So this this story is also a survival story, isn't it? In, in that regard, I, I've said this before, but the Torah, not only this partial, but the entire Torah is a survival manual for the people of God. The Torah is the most valuable, the most comprehensive, the most practical survival manual you could ever have for times of crises, uh, for future persecution, uh, for the Great Tribulation even, is, is how I see it. So um, th- this is what I want to do together. You know what? I want to ask you, who here in this room is descended from Noah and his wife? I hope I see all of your hands, because if you're not, then you must be one of the Nephilim or descended from an alien or something. (laughs) You know, it's cool to think about, but if Noah and his family were the only ones who survived, then he's your great, great, great grandfather. Grandpa Noah. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I want to just kind of imagine, like, going out for coffee with great, great, great. Grandfather Noah, and just asking him some questions about about his life, about how he survived, about what his inner spiritual life looked like, and uh, we're, we're going to see what we can learn from him as his as his great uh, great great grandchildren. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on seven main areas here that we can learn about Noah that immediately applies to our lives also, and uh, this is interesting because uh, you know a lot of people see a major difference between the abstract and the concrete between the intangible and the tangible but uh you know what there isn't such a difference sometimes as what you'd think sometimes spiritual qualities or uh inner concepts or uh things pertaining to the heavenly dimensions they uh they can be regarded as rather abstract eh? they they're not very tangible it's like not the kind of thing you can quantify very well and uh, I'm the type of person I, I often do want to be able to quantify things. I appreciate something that's tangible, how thing, things that are measurable, eh? So um, sometimes the spiritual things I have to think a little bit more to get to connect with that. And uh, these these things that we're going to be looking at, they may not be concrete, tangible things that will result in someone's life being saved through times of crisis. But you know what? Sometimes those spiritual realities. Are even more real than physical experience. Um, Those abstract spiritual realities are what determine physical existence. Yeah. So we're we're going to be looking at that together. Uh, Firstly, we go to we can go to uh, great great grandfather Noach and we can we can ask him about himself and he'll 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 explain to us how uh, he actually found grace in the eyes of Elohim. He was one of the only people in his generation who found who found favor in the eyes of the Almighty. And, uh, th- this is a challenge to us to, to do everything that we can to, to find that grace, to, uh, to stay in touch with His grace, uh, to live by His grace. We, we read in Acts 20, 24 that the gospel, the Basurah, it's the gospel of the grace of God. So there's this very close connection between His grace and the gospel of Messiah. Yeah. Um, here, here, here's, a, here's a quote from Shaul, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. This ties in, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. So did you hear that? The gospel is what we stand in. It's by the gospel, the Bisorah of Mashiach, that we're saved. Um, you know, I I I shared with you I think a couple of weeks ago how I feel really challenged in this area, and uh, so this is something I'm sharing with you on a very personal level. Like I really aspire in this upcoming year to stay strong in the Basorah, in, the, in in the gospel, uh, to to retain a gospel orientation. I I I really want to grow in in contemplating the practical ramifications of the gospel every waking moment. Why? Well, because it's the gospel of God's grace and. It's only by His grace that I am going to stand in times of crisis. The only power that is going to save us and our families in the coming global cataclysm is going to be the power of the gospel. Yeah. So this is something that we learn from Noah. Here, here's a question. Uh who? who? Who is He gracious to? We read this in Yaakov. It's like this perfect connection. He is gracious to the humble. Yeah. So... There's like this invitation, this challenge there to, to uh, to go on a quest for humility, to pursue it, um, to pursue a humble attitude, a, a humble countenance, a, a humble outlook and worldview, uh, a humble humble conversation. And uh, this is another thing in my personal life that I really, that's really been on like the top of my priority list in the last year or two. You know, going on a quest for humility. I see that in Yeshua, and I admire that. I, I want to grow in that. i um, here are two practical steps to humility. Um, number one, be honest with yourself and with the Holy One about how you're really doing. <laughs> Sometimes it's not fun to do that. Um, don't focus on what you know or how much of the Torah you already observe or the successes to which you've already obtained. I dare you. I dare you to focus on what you don't know. Ask yourself, what don't I know yet? In what areas am I like uneducated or or illiterate, or, or or could I grow in my in my knowledge, spiritual knowledge also. Um, focus on the mitzvot that you're not observing yet. You know, sometimes when people come to the Torah, they say, "Okay, check, check, check." You know, uh, got my got my tzitzit on. It's Shabbat, and I'm chillaxing on Shabbat. You no, know, I'm pretty observant now. But uh, there are a whole series of mitzvot that I have never done once in my life. Um, for instance, part of our mission as a messianic community is to like raise dead people from the dead so that they're not dead anymore like people who are clinically dead bring those corpses back to life Yeshua did that we have several records of his early disciples doing that he said as the father sent me I'm sending you this is part of our mission it's a mitzvah to raise the dead I haven't raised someone from the dead yet that's one of those mitzvah you can't just kind of walk off and do on your own hey that takes the power of the ruach but you know what we are in a trajectory towards that you know, cleaning out leper colonies. I've never even cleansed one leper. There are hundreds of thousands of lepers. It's it's heartrending. Get on Wikipedia. You know, just um, get, Google image leper and and see the the sad images. That I've never cleansed a leper in my life. You know, so you know when it comes to observance, it's it's smart to focus on the mitzvah that we can still grow in. And I'm not talking about condemnation here, right? I'm talking about wow, Father, I have room to grow, right? That that goes a long way towards keeping us humble. When instead of looking at other people and their observance or their knowledge level or whatever their successes, look at we look at ourselves. We focus on our. That's an area where you can be self-focused. It's it's healthy and and humble to be (laughs) self-focused in that area. Yeah. Um. Here here, here's a second uh, practical area of humility. Um. Again, this is something Yaakov teaches us in the reading. Be be quick to repent. Be be quick to confess your sins. You know, if you can, do it every day to God and to the people around you. Like, you know, being quick to apologize. And uh, that's a very valuable valuable habit. And, uh, yeah, that's something I I think I'm getting better at now that I'm married. (laughs) Because it just gives you so many more reasons to apologize every day. (laughs) And if you don't, things just don't go as well. You don't get away with as much, you know? (laughs) So, anyway, yeah, marriage is wonderfully humbling. And I'm thankful for it. Uh, so so number two uh, as we read some of these uh, this listing of Noah and his inner life we see that he was an isht Sadiq. he was a a righteous man and uh, we we can aspire to find our righteousness in Mashiach to live out that righteousness to practice that righteousness on a lifestyle level Um, here is a relevant proverb 11 verse 4 wealth doesn't profit in the day of wrath so no you know when it comes to that day of wrath, when everything hits the fan, the bank account, the pension, the investments, they may not do us much good. In fact, in the event of a total economic collapse, they're not going to be doing us much good at all. But the proverb goes on to say, righteousness delivers from death. Sadaka mimavet. Yeah. So is that Proverbs 11:4. No problem. Here's a question. Does that righteousness that delivers from death, does that righteousness involve doing God's commandments, possibly? I mean, we know it's a faith-based righteousness, right? That we have through Yeshua's finished atonement, but could it involve doing God's commandments also? Oh yeah, absolutely, I, I think. Um, this parasha suggests that idea also. Chapter 6, verse 22, we read, Thus Noah did. According to all that Elohim had commanded him, so he did. And uh, just to clarify that idea, do God's commandments, the mitzvot, do they include those in the Torah, maybe? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, probably preaching to the choir on that one, right? But when you just begin realizing that returning to the Torah, practicing God's commandments, could be an essential part of survival in the future, it begins to really come into focus why we're doing some of this stuff. Yeah. Um... Number three, you know what? We could even say that Noah was saved by works, by his actions, if you know, with the understanding that those works were an outflow of his faith. Um, Noah's actions they were in direct response to the revelation of God that he received. So in that regard, we can see this third quality that Noah exhibited was he was a man of faith. He he was a man of emunah, um, not a static, passive intellectual ascent faith uh, noah was a was a he was a man with a construction worker faith <laughs> he, he had faith that built a boat a really big boat we're talking several stories here he probably timber framed the thing i i, I have a background in timber framing right in construction so I know what it's like to work with massive beams and uh, he probably didn't work with those big 200 plus volt power saws that it takes all of your might to hold it you know he had hand tools but Noah had construction worker faith. It was like it was a faith that was robust. It was a faith that was active and obedient. And uh, when we begin to connect with this concept of doing the mitzvot, that faith begins to break out in our lives too. We begin to develop that construction worker faith. Uh, here, here's a here's a scripture from Hebrews 11:7 that Genevieve uh, mentioned to me this last week as we were midrashing over this passage. Uh, it says, uh, "By faith Noah." Did you hear that? By faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Wow. So here's the question. Here's a practical question. How does that faith come into our lives? How do we grow in that faith? Yes, by doing. That's an essential element. Believing? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a scripture in Romans 10, where Shawell talked about this. He said, faith comes from what? Hearing. How would you say that in, in Hebrew or in Heblish? Shemaing. Faith comes from shemaing. <laughs> yeah. And hearing by the word of Mashiach. Shemaing by the word of Mashiach, Romans 10:17. So again, you know, to bring this back to Messiah, to bring this back to the, the Besorah of uh, salvation that we have in Yeshua, you know, we can continue to get into the gospel of Mashiach. We can continue to study the Bible that Jesus read. <laughs> um, To like really engage deeply in Torah study, because seriously, that could make the difference in the future between life and death for so many people and their families. Here's a fourth area that we can learn about from Noah. He walked with the Almighty. That's a verb, eh? Walk. Do, 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 do. Right? But it means more in Hebrew. Um, in Hebrew it literally says, it's like a, the, the, the verb is in the heat file form. So it means he, uh, he literally, he walked himself with the Almighty. Like he, he intentionally, you could say. It has the connotation of he in- he was intentional about staying close to the Almighty as He went through each day. It's like He chose to do life with His Creator. He made that choice every day, is uh, is the idea in Hebrew. And uh, here's another cool insight from the Hebrew. It uh, says, Et ha-Elohim hit Halech noach. Did anyone notice that first word? Et ha-Elohim hit Halech noach. Um, you know, in our, your English translation it says that noach walked, with Elohim but the Hebrew term there for with is at spelled Aleph and Tav, which of course the Greek equivalent is alpha and omega right you know who that is so you could almost say that it was through Messiah that Noah was walking with his creator it is through Messiah that we walk with our creator Yeshua who is the olefin Tav, who is the Torah from beginning to end uh, the word made flesh yeah <laughs> um, fifthly we can see that Noah had a personal covenant with Elohim, and this is interesting because I think this is the first time that this Hebrew term "brit" or covenant actually comes up in the Torah. Yeah, so this is like this carries heavy weight in, in terms of the the law of uh, first mention. Um, Noah guarded that covenant, and in response, Elohim guarded his covenant with Noah. It was a two way deal. Um, here, here's a quote from this uh, parsha: "Everything that is on the earth." will expire but I will establish my covenant with you um, I encourage you if you want a, if you want a very meaningful homework assignment uh, go home and get out your strongs or get on your computer on ESWORD and do a study of covenant every mention of covenant in the scriptures um, I, I have to admit you know growing up in our Western society I have not had a very firm grasp of the term covenant um marriage often is the closest thing that we have it's a picture of covenant in our culture i've seen some failed marriages in my time i I, I saw a failed marriage very close to me in my teen years um, in that regard you know i I really wrestled with this idea of what understanding what a covenant looks like eh? and uh, man, I started studying covenant in the scriptures and it began to come to life. I, I began to realize for the first time what a covenant is all about, how it 's relevant to my faith life, how it is what my relationship. With my creator is founded on. Wow, it's it's powerful stuff. Here's some questions that you can be asking yourself if you wanna if you wanna go ahead with this uh, homework assignment. What is my personal covenant with Yahweh based on? How was it inaugurated? What are its conditions? Uh, wh- what are my responsibilities? What are his responsibilities? Uh, what are the guaranteed promises that he has included in this covenant package? Um, what's the concrete sign? Of the covenant, Ha-ha, that's another thing we notice in this parasha. When he makes a covenant, he always gives a physical token. He gives a concrete sign. So that's something perhaps um, to contemplate also. What is the uh, what is that concrete sign of the new covenant that we have in Mashiach's blood? Um, fifthly, we see that Noah. No, I'm sorry. This is sixthly. Sixthly, we see that Noah, was a leader in his family, in uh, in Bereshit, Genesis 7 verse 1 we read Then Yahweh said to Noah Enter the ark You and all your household For you alone In the singular It says in Hebrew You alone I have seen to be a tzaddik before me In this time Did you notice that? It doesn't even indicate in the Torah That Noah's family was particularly righteous You alone Noah Have I seen to be a tzaddik A a righteous individual uh, In this time But by the virtue, this is how I see it, by by the virtue of um, Noah's wife and uh, his his sons and uh, his daughters-in-law, by the virtue of their following his leadership, they experienced the deliverance that came because of his high level of devotion, that came because of his righteousness. That, that's how I see it. Um, Genevieve and I were discussing Noah's wife this last week. It actually, uh, I don't even mention her name in the Torah, but if you ask me, she is the hero of this parasha. I mean, Noah, I mean, he was he was out there on the front lines. He was preaching righteousness. He was taking flack for it. He was working hard and sweating to build that thing. But, man, you just think about what Noah's wife went through. I mean, her social life probably went down the tubes. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah, there's the, there's, there's the wife of the man who is just a little loopy and just a little too judgmental for our liking. You know what I'm saying? I mean, um, man, I don't know, like... Must have been a really t- tough century for for Noah's wife. Yeah, um, yeah, a tough century.
1: <laughs> um,
0: I I admire her wife, his wife. Actually, it's interesting. In in Jewish tradition, it does it does suggest his name in the Book of Jubilee, it? it suggests her name as being Aimzarah. Amzara. Amzara. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it's kind of nice to have a name in mind when you think of Noah's wife. I mean, she was like the. Uh, the great-great-great-grandmother of all of us, eh? So I, I just have like a really small humorous skit here of maybe an imaginary conversation between Noah and Imzura, Uh Genevieve, i for you. Just to kind of maybe imagine what she was going through, maybe when he first broke the news to her. You want to do this with me, Genevieve? So um, you can stand right here. We'll say that this is your kitchen, okay? Yeah. And we don't eat meat yet, so you're not cooking up a steak. You're preparing a wonderful salad. All right. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm out here just communing with Elohim, and maybe it's like praying in the morning or whatever. And okay. So anyway, I come in the door. Ah, ah, ah. honey. Elohim spoke to me. He told me it's gonna rain. Well, uh, I don't exactly know yet, but he told me to build a boat. What's A boat? Uh, Well, uh, to to, to float on the water, of course. What water, dear? Uh, the water that's going to come when it rains. Yes, but what's rain? You know what, Ames, I'll I'll have to tell you later. But I can't do this alone, baby. Will you help me? Yes, I will help you, Noah. you know what? That was where the rubber met the road, wasn't it? You know what? Maybe she didn't have all her questions answered. Maybe she wasn't re- quite sure about this whole thing from the start. But when she said, "Noah, I'm going to be your Ezer. I'm going to help you," like she saved, his, she saved the day for him, didn't she? And uh, she also ensured the salvation of her whole family. Yeah, she wasn't. She wasn't like Job's wife. <laughs> So anyway, I just wanted to point out that even though she doesn't isn't even mentioned by name here, Noah's wife is like the unsung hero of this parasha in in my atten- uh, opinion. Um th- there's a powerful principle here. The principle is that your righteousness directly affects your immediate family. Your righteousness directly affects your extended family. Um Ezekiel chapter 14, I don't have time to go through the whole passage and break it down, but um uh, this is especially in, starting in verse 12, Ezekiel 14, verse 12. Um, I'll, just, I'll read it to you in, in, in short here. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves declares Adonai Yahweh. Uh, then in verse 15, he goes on to list wild beasts, Chayot, um, Raot, which I think could include both microcosmic wild beasts, such as viruses and the active agents in biological warfare. I think he could also include macrocosmic wild beasts, such as Hamas and uh, hate-filled terrorists bent on murder. Um, verse 16, he he concludes the comment on wild beasts by saying, though these three men were in its midst, As I live, declares Adonai Yahweh, they couldn't deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Uh, Verse 17, he references the sword, uh, representing civic violence, foreign invasion. And then he says that they could only save themselves by the righteousness. Verse 19, he references plague, uh, which could include epidemic sickness of uh, fatal magnitude, uh, pandemic diseases, and... uh, (coughs) <coughs> then this is how the passage concludes. It's kind of depressing. Like, you know, when he hits when he hits the country with these judgments that are are designed to even to to take life, uh, these individuals they could only deliver themselves. But then this is how it ends, Ezekiel fourteen twenty one. For thus says Adonai Yahweh, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Yerushalayim, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and animal from it. Yet behold, survivors will be left in it, who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. And the Hebrew there, from what I understand, it could also come out, survivors will be left in it, who will bring out their sons and daughters. Behold, they are going to come forth to you, and you will see their conduct and actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity, which I have brought against Jerusalem for everything which I have brought upon it. Then they will comfort you when you see their conduct and actions, for you will know that I have not done in vain whatever I did to it, declares Adonai Yahweh. So we see that there are instances when your righteousness can only deliver you. But there are also instances, sometimes in the worst forms of judgment, where uh, the righteousness of an individual will also save his family, save her family. Uh, Your children will live because you stand firm in your, in your faith. So uh, that, that is something that is encouraging to me, something that I hold dear to my heart as a promise for our family, and uh, I leave that with you as an encouragement also. Uh, seventhly, when we look at Noach's, the, 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 uh, the profile of Noah, we see that he was not only a leader in his family, he was a leader in his community. <laughs> he, he may not have had much of a following, but uh, Noah was a leader in his community. Uh, Shimon Kifa... In uh, his second letter, chapter 2 verse 5, says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So, uh, Noah, he was outspoken. He, he, for righteousness, uh, he was, he was probably aggressively outspoken for righteousness. Um, Noah was ridiculed, despised, hated by his culture, but he continued to do what was right. He continued to preach that everyone else should do what was right too which uh wasn't popular in the days of Noach, and you know what, as it was in the days of Noah, so it is today. It's not popular when you start saying, when you start getting outspoken about absolute standards of right and wrong, and suggesting that other people should be doing what's right, according to your standard of right and wrong, which of course is, you know, hopefully based on the scripture. Man, like in our culture, that is very not cool. And it probably wasn't cool in Noach's time also. I, 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 I challenge each one of you here. I, I challenge myself. Let's be preachers of righteousness in our own homes. Let's be preachers of righteousness in our workplaces. Let's be preachers of righteousness on the golf course. Just getting imaginative here, you know? Um, let's be preachers of righteousness on Facebook. Like, everywhere you go, wherever you do life, let's be preachers of righteousness. And, uh, you know what, if it's anything like today, like it was in Noak's time, you're going to get people mad at you sometimes. Um, people are going to hate your guts. But uh, you know what, yeah, they hated Noak's guts too. He got a lot of people really mad. And uh, you know what, that was okay because uh, he got the last laugh. While all of his detractors, all they had was the last glob. So you know, when you look at the big picture... Above all, we want to please the Almighty. We want to make sure we accomplish the mission that He has given us. And part of that mission is to be outspoken about His standards of right and wrong. In a world where it's extremely popular to do that. Genevieve. Yeah, you're right. Daniel and Ezekiel were contemporaries, So Daniel's righteousness must have just... He must have had a profound reputation for unyielding righteousness. And Genevieve, that's a good point. It has to be by his spirit, and like you said, Hannah, it has to be hopefully by how we do our do our lives. Um, it's interesting that it says that by Noah's act of building the ark, he condemned the world. So there was a lifestyle level of righteousness and preaching going on there. Um, I think we probably all encountered people who, who were like hardcore preachers of righteousness and at the same times maybe came across a little arrogantly, maybe seemed like they had cold hearts, maybe didn't seem like they really cared. I mean, you know, who who who's to judge? I've probably been that person at different times, but we don't want to come across like that, eh? I think especially in our culture it's not it's um that's not cool. <laughs> um we were talking about legacy, so I just want to mention on a legacy level, um in uh, Hebrews 11 verse 2, uh it, it lists the the heroes of the Torah that by their faith obtained a testimony is how it phrases it. And uh, when we look at the, when we look at the life of Noah, we can say this man obtained a testimony. By his faith, he had a story to tell. He has a story to tell in the kingdom to his, his great, 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 great grandchildren. When we all come flocking to him and say, tell us the story of, of your ark and how you survived. I mean, that man had a testimony, but you know what? Each of us through our faith is developing a testimony also. Each of us is going to have a reputation on the day we die of what our lives were like and uh, that that is something to to hold in mind how how are we going to be remembered how are we remembered um in in uh, genesis on a very practical level in gen, on gen, in genesis chapter 10 verses 25 to 27 we see that before noah's death the uh, the prophetic inspiration like the ruach hakodesh it came on noah and he prophesied over each of his sons um he he affirmed things in them he he foretold elements in their future um there there's a there's a famous Jewish saying in the Talmud that like basically as it goes with the Father, so it will go with the sons. It's portents for the children. And I believe that's true. We talked about that before. Um this is not something that is common in our culture at all. But I believe, and this is what Jewish tradition says suggests, that before it's time for each one of us to go, there's gonna be that time when the Ruach HaKodesh comes on you, and you're gonna have that prophetic like inspiration to, to speak into your, the lives of your children and your grandchildren prophetically. Maybe you've never done that in your life, but it is something that's available to each of us as believers. Um, Paul, Paul taught about that, didn't he? So it's that's, that's just something to remember. You know, I, I wonder how many times the prophetic inspiration has, has come on someone in their older age And, uh, they, maybe they didn't know what it was. Or maybe they weren't used to speaking the Word of God into the lives of their family members. And so maybe they, or maybe, so maybe for whatever reasons they just ignored it or shrugged it off or excused it. But you know, that is something that we want to value. That's something we want to be ready for. When the, when the Spirit comes and it gives you something to speak into the life of a family member or someone you're mentoring, just be ready to speak that immediately. Yeah. And we learned that from Great Grandpa Noah. Yeah. Um. Okay, we're going to touch. Uh, I'm trying to like be a little more thematic in how I how I touch on stuff in the Torah. So that was that was our main teaching from the Torah. Hopefully that was pretty coherent. There are a ton of cool little like textual insights and other little things that I'm not going to get into today. But there is one other main theme in this parsha that I want to talk about. I'm not sure if you noticed, but uh, the the last uh, the last reading that we had was a little bit sorted. Um, it's the one where Noah after the flood planted a vineyard and enjoyed the uh, results of it a little too much. And, uh, you know, there's a very practical lesson in this that I want to get into today because I, I, I believe it's relevant um, for us as a, as a movement, as a Messianic Jewish movement. And um, well, let, let's look at it together. So, you know, basically in this story, in this story uh, Noah gets hammered. He ends up unclothed and unconscious in his tent. Um, his youngest son, Ham, gets a real load out of his father's debased state. Runs to his other two brothers. I don't know. Maybe said something like, "Hey guys, get a load of dad. He's passed out and naked. Gotta come and check this out." You know. I mean, it doesn't sound like Ham had much depth to him. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, what is his? What is? What is the response of his other two brothers? It says they walk backwards into the tent, up to their father. They avert their eyes and they cover his shame. They preserve the honor of their father. And I wonder, what does that look like in our lives? And here are a couple of examples, not just on an individual level, but uh, as a movement. Um, how, how does an approach like this, of preserving the honor of our fathers, say, affect our approach to uh, church history? H- how, how does an approach like this affect our approach to Jewish history? Um, how, how would an approach like this affect uh, how we talk about leaders in the body of Messiah who have fallen into sin? Sometimes I, I wonder if our approach is closer to Ham, who, who took a perverse fascination in his father's historical failure, who in, in his father's moment of weakness in his father's shame. Um, it's something to contemplate. It's something that I've been contemplating in my own life. You know, my, my, my even my raising this is very counterculture because uh, we live in a world where the media is everywhere, and what does the media really grab a hold of? it grab a holds of the scandals of people's shames of exposing things that are embarrassing to others doesn't it and you know what it happens in the christian world too leader in the body of the messiah falls into sin and i don't know how it's supposed to work all i know is it's all over the place right and uh i don't know I, I just wonder like sometimes like am i more like ham or am i more like um shem and japheth and and how i and how i read history and how i what I look at on the news and stuff like that. So um here's uh, here's kind of to take this concept a little further. I'm going to talk about pornography for a second. It's probably not a very popular thing to talk about in sermons, but just stop and think about this for a second. What is the physical act of pornography on a very simple level? It's someone exposing their shame and someone else looking at it. That's what it is very simply and that's exactly it's basically exactly what happened in this parish right so it's in the parish so i feel okay talking about this um that's physical pornography but let me ask you what is soul pornography what is spiritual pornography could it be that sometimes we indulge in that level here 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 here's what here's what i think soul pornography is i think it's exposing another shame through spreading gossip Telling sordid stories of someone's failure. Pointing out the faults and weaknesses of another human being. In Hebrew we call that genre of conversation Lashon What who, who can tell me what Lashan Hara is? Evil tongue. It's talking badly about someone else. So soul pornography. It isn't just staring at the shame of another person by spreading Lashon Hara. Soul pornography is also staring at the shame of another person by listening to lashon Hara, by tolerating such wickedness to be spoken in our presence. And I'm telling you, you know what? It's all over the place in the religious world. And you know what? A lot of times it passes. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I've spread the Hara times. Of course I have. I, I don't know if any of us in this room could say we never have. In the times when I have, I've always had a reason. I've always had an excuse. I've always thought that I was right. And I can look it back at, I almost feel like crying right now, because it hurts me to say this, but I can look at times in my life when, I, when I've spoken evil of a brother or a sister, and and I was arrogant, and I thought I had a reason to, and I didn't. It's never right. And and that's something that the Father's really been like challenging me to repent on in the last couple of years. So you know what? Maybe we're not guilty of playing around with physical pornography, but there's a soul pornography that runs rampant in the religious world. And it's something that the Father is calling us to repent of. Um, Let me ask you, this this is like a really crazy illustration, okay? Like, if somebody came into our congregation, I'm not going to give an example here, because that would be too crazy, but if someone came into our congregation with the Playboy magazine, like, under his coat jacket, and he pulled it out and was like, hey, have a look at this, like, how would you react to that? Man, like, that would be a shocker, wouldn't it? If, like, someone in our midst even do that. Like, no tolerance, right? That does not fly. But let me ask you, like, what if someone comes into our congregation and begins speaking badly for whatever reasons about another person, spreading soul pornography? How do we react to that? Somehow or other, you know what? We've just lost the shock value of that, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Um... But you know what? We should react the same way. Because it's the same spirit. It's the same sin. And, um, yeah. So, you know, that's something that we can, let Yeshua continue to talk to us about as, as individuals and, and as a movement, as a community in this province. Um, that's, that's my segue into the book of Yaakov. Yaakov really hits on this topic, too, in uh, chapters 4 and 5. Let's look at that together. You want to turn there with me? Yaakov yeah, 4 and 5. Um, 4 verse 11. He says, uh, This is nice and simple. Don't speak against each other, brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, moving on in 5 verse 9, he says, Don't complain against each other, brothers, so that you yourselves won't be judged. Look, the judge is standing right at the door. Wow. That's scary. It's almost like dum, dum, dum. Look, the judge is standing right at the door. He's right outside the door. Um, yeah, you know, if you if you uh, if you look at the the Greek term here for judging a brother or sister, it means to critically analyze a brother or sister. He says, "Don't don't don't complain against a brother or sister. Don't don't speak against a brother or sister." You know what? Um, even when everybody, I don't know, maybe this even applies sometimes to uh, people in the world at large. Uh, uh, figures in government, uh, whoever, you know, uh, even when everybody else at the workplace, or on the news, or in the body of Messiah is indulging in this evil activity, you know what Yaakov says? Just don't do it. And uh, and here's why. 5 verse 9, so that you won't be judged. You know, for, for my understanding, I'll share with you my understanding of this. It's a law that God is going to treat you the way you treat others. So, if you treat others with generosity, mercy, forgiveness, he's going to treat you the same way. If your first response is to be critical of others, to psychoanalyze them, to discern their faults so that you can judge them and dismiss them as not being a brother or sister or not deserving of your love, that's how he's going to treat you. He will dismiss you as you've dismissed others. He'll come down hard on you just like you did to others. So, for those of us who are, it's not of us, sorry, I don't want to say that, but for those who are so arrogant as to speak against, complain against, and judge others, according to the scriptures, there is no grace until they humble themselves and repent. So, these are pretty strong words, aren't they? You know, as, as I was preparing this teaching, I just really felt like this is a message for Messiah. You know, it's something for us to be aware of, but this is a message for the greater body of Messiah too. This is a message for the Messianic Jewish community. Because this is an area where, like lashon hara, is rampant in in some sectors, and it's very damaging. Um, here I'll I'll tell you I'll I'll give you my my uh, perspective. People, this is how I see it. People who judge the motives of others, they think they're God. Really, it's like the ultimate arrogance. Like, really, who but God knows someone else's heart? Who but God can judge a person's motives? But I have encountered people, they think they know other people's hearts. They think they can judge another person's motives. And, uh, you know, as I see it, God is the only true judge. You know, when when someone judges another person's hearts and motives, they're, like, committing one of the highest acts of blasphemy. Yikers, hey? So, anyway, I just... Uh, this is very personal for me, right? Like I, I don't often like sit here and cry in front of you. It's because like the father's been like hitting me hard in this area. He's been challenging me. I, I have been repenting. He's breaking me. And um Yeah. It's an area that we can all continue to grow in. We can like challenge each other in this area, hey? So yeah. Let let's look at uh let's look at this letter from Yako for a couple of minutes here. Well well I'd like to wrap it about twelve thirty. Um I love this letter. It's from the Master's own brother. It is so thoroughly Jewish. It has such a deep Hebraic context to it. I'll just uh, point out, I'll point out four examples of it in this letter for you. In uh, F5 verse 3, he, uh, he's tackling the rich because they're mistreating people. Man, he really lays into them. And, uh, he says, it's in the last days that you have stored up your treasure, it's in the Aharit Haimim. So this is interesting. According to Yaakov, and according to uh, Shimon Kifa and Shaul also, they all use this term. They, uh, In their understanding, they were in the Aharit Haimim. They were in the last days. How much more so are we today? And you know what? You might ask, like, how could that be? I mean, that was over 2,000 years ago. That wasn't the last days. But to understand that, you need to understand this principle that has always been understood in Jewish eschatology, and something that we lost touch with in uh, Christian eschatology historically. Um, we read in the Psalms that with Yahweh a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Uh, Simon Kiefer references this principle also in Second Peter chapter 3. Um, this is his uh, one thing that he says not to be ignorant of. Don't be ignorant of this. With him a thousand years is like a day and vice versa, hey? And that is his answer to people who say, yeah, you know what? Yeshua's is not coming back. Everything is going to keep going the way it's always gone. Business as usual. And uh, in Jewish eschatology there's always been an understanding that there will be 6,000 years of human history and then a seventh 1,000-year block of time in you could call it the messianic era, the Yomi Mashiach, you could call it uh, In Christian eschatology I think it would be often be called the 1,000-year reign of Christ, right? And um it's, it was very common in the first century. That was the standard, uh, understanding of end of day stuff. And, uh, that was based on the first week of creation. There were six days and then there was, uh, like a, a, a holy, a holy day. And uh, that's like a massive topic. I'm not going to get into it in any more detail than that. But, uh, stop and think about this for a second. What day is the middle of the week? Wednesday. And which which number of the. Yeah. What number is that in the the day count? Yom Revi'i. It's fourth day, isn't it? So let me ask you, what are the last days of the week if Wednesday is the middle day? However you want to say it, sure. Five, six, seven, which are called usually in English? Thursday, Friday, Saturday. That is correct. So when you look at world history, When you look at when Mashiach came for the first time, and uh, the literature written by his disciples that followed, including this, this letter, you see that these guys were at the, uh, they were at the end of Wednesday and the beginning of Thursday. Okay? Like if you want to, want to view it in that template. And uh, here's something interesting. In Israel, you don't only say Shabbat Shalom on the seventh day of the week. You, uh, greet each other with Shabbat Shalom, like on Friday, or, Maybe on Thursday, or maybe even Wednesday evening, like if you really are looking forward to Shabbat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like as soon as Wednesday over, you're in the last days of the week, you're beginning to wind down and go to Shabbat, right? Or wind up, depending on how you look at it. And um, it's the same way with with, uh, with eschatology. Yes, they were at the beginning of the last 3,000 year days of world history. So yes, they were in the last days. And yes, we are in the Akhir Itaymi Mosque. So, uh, hopefully that helps us understand how, why these guys thought they were in the last days. They weren't just delusional. They weren't just like, um, raving mad, apocalyptic people who just wanted to see the world come around or something, right? Um, we have enough of those today. I'm sure they had lots of those back then, but the authors of, uh, these epistles were not included in the ranks. They had a, they had solid rationale. Um, here's something really cool. You know, I remember when I was a little boy asking about this. Uh, Yaakov 5, verse 4, it says, uh, it's still like, and he's laying into the rich people, right? And he says, uh, the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. <laughs> and I was like, I remember being like, what is Sabaoth? I thought maybe it was the Sabbath or something, like the Lord of the Sabbath or whatever. And I don't know, it wasn't, I think, until I began actually studying Ivrit, like, eight or nine years ago that I discovered that this is a translation in English of a translation in Greek from an original Hebrew term, Tzav'aot. <laughs> in Hebrew we would say like, Adonai Tzav'aot, Yahweh Tzav'aot. And uh, what is that term Tzav'aot in Hebrew? Yeah, it's, it's it's often rendered as like the Almighty. It's literally like, an, the uh, what, what's the army called in Israel today? Can anyone tell me that? it's the Tzavah. Yeah, you know, you do your time in the Tzavah, the army. Tzavahot is what? Armies. So the Lord of Sabaoth is what? Like the general of heaven's armies. And uh, this is just a very small example of how that original Hebrew of these epistles still comes through. Like for some reason they didn't bother to translate that word. They just left that original Hebrew word because... I don't know, maybe it misses the smash if you try to translate it, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's a clue, a little remez, right? Um, In Yaakov 5, verse 16, he he references the legendary powers of the prayers of a tzaddik, a righteous individual. Uh, This is cool because in the Jewish world, like a a hero, a real hero is someone who is a tzaddik, like a righteous individual. And uh, the prayers of a tzaddik they're like they 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 have so many like uh, legends about how the power of the prayers of a tzaddik. You know, this righteous person prayed for this and it happened. Uh, you read so many stories on the Talmud about that, for instance. And uh, you can just totally hear that idea shining through in Yaakov's letter. Only in, in his letter, he said, "You're the tzaddik. You're the tzaddik. Your prayers are powerful. Your your prayers have that legendary like I, I don't say that legendary power to get a job done, to see things accomplished." It's not, it's not encouraging. It's almost like when you when you understand it in the Jewish concept, context, context of its tzaddik, it just comes to life. Um, and then the last insight into the, the Jewish context of this letter is 5, verse 17. In 5.17, Yaakov um, references a historical fact from Israel's history that isn't recorded in the Tanakh. He actually draws on extra-biblical Jewish tradition, and he references how long the period of time was that uh this famine in Israel happened when uh Eliyahu was prophesying. Of course, you know, at the at the culmination of that famine uh he had a successful showdown with the false prophets. He says it was three and a half years. Isn't that an interesting time period? Isn't it interesting that same length of time pops up in the book of Revelation in conjunction with the Great Tribulation? What what we can get from that is that like there's this link between the Book of Revelation and that last three and a half period of time um, leading up to the return of Mashiach, and that three and a half period of time between Eli- with Elijah that culminated in the showdown with the false prophets. But let's let's finish by uh, just having a little overview of a couple of practical mitzvot from the Book of Yaakov. I love how intensively practical this uh, this man is in his teaching. 4 verse two, he says, uh, "If you need something, yeah, pray and ask for it." <laughs> 4 verse 9, he, us to, he encourages us to engage on an emotional level when we're repenting and confessing our sins. Um, the, impli- the implication is if our heart isn't in it, it's not real repentance. It's okay to cry when you repent. Actually, in his opinion, it looks like he, it's more like it's okay to bawl when you repent. Um, 4.11, he says, and uh, I think uh, quite a few of us do this. I know I was in conversation with with Hannah just this last week, and she had mentioned, you know, God willing, I will uh, be doing, uh, I think you said I'll see you next Shabbat or whatever, right? And I thought, that's cool. I admire that. Bringing the Almighty into our conversations on a very practical level. 4.11, he he, uh, he encourages us when we state our planned activities to say, in the will of God. In Hebrew, this term is, Birtzon Elohim. Can we all say, Birtzon Elohim? Oh, 4, 4.15, thank you. Oh, thank you, Genevieve, yeah. Um, that's actually cool. In, in the Orthodox Jewish world, do you know what the equivalent term is? Yeah, that, that's one. I'm thinking of one that sounds very, very close. Uh, Bezrat Hashem. Bezrat Hashem. Uh, Ezra is like help. So, Bezrat Hashem is like with the help of Hashem, with the help of God. And, uh, that's a very common phrase and yeah, I appreciate that one too. Yeah, Beard Elohim, and the desire and the will of Elohim. That maybe you could say that would be the messianic Jewish equivalent of Bezrat Hashem. Man, don't you love how, like, Yaakov just hits stuff so hard? I mean, like, you know, he, he talks about judge, judgment in a way that is not popular to talk about today. Like, in hyper-grace churches, they would kick him out or never invite him to preach. <laughs> like, 5 verse 12. What, what, what's the uh, What's the rationale for not swearing? <laughs> so that you don't fall under judgment. I mean, man, try and, like, preach that today, hey? It's just not as popular anymore. But you know what? Yeah, that's part of the gospel too. Right alongside the, the the mercy and the grace of Elohim. And uh here's the last practical mitzvah that we can consider. This is one that I've been really convicted of lately. Um when you get that little tickle in your throat, when you begin to get a bit of a headache, when you feel like you're beginning to come down with something, <laughs> where is the first place you run? <laughs> Do you run to the medicine cabinet or the cupboard and start popping vitamin C's and echinacea um chugging oregano oil and uh, cayenne pepper? <laughs> Ooh that's stuff! that stuff's kicky. Um if you're really hardcore, maybe doing some hydrogen peroxide or MMS or something um is the first place you run the local clinic so your doctor can prescribe some medication for you? I'm not saying these things are bad, right? I mean, these are, these are wonderful things to help us stay healthy, to help us ward off sicknesses. But I'm thinking, are these the first places we run when we feel we're coming down with something? Or do we uh, maybe follow Yako's instructions here? Um, is our first response to run for the telephone, to call up the elders of our congregation so they can pray for us? Do we immediately run to God in repentance and ask Him what sin we should be confessing? It's nice, actually. Yaakov gives really clear instructions regarding what to do when we're sick. So, you know, if we want to do things by the book, maybe this is even is could be regarded as a mitzvah. You know? So Yaakov is writing in the name of the Master. He was giving some mitzvot here, you know? If we want to do things by the book, run for the phone, call up an elder or two, in your congregation, have them pray for you, and then run for the cupboard and grab your vitamin C (laughs) and all all the other accoutrements. (laughs) And Man, I... uh, (coughs) Excuse me, I'm not coughing for emphasis. (laughs) But I was convicted of that when I got sick after camp. So I thought I would leave with that ultra-practical note. You know, I was convicted when I first started getting sick. I started popping the vitamin C and chugging the water and the oregano oil and all the stuff that my... My mom said I should do. My mom's really smart when it comes to health matters. Um, anyway, and you know what? I was convicted. I realized I didn't run to God first, seriously. So I, I called up uh, the elders of our Saskatoon congregation, and I just asked them if they would pray for me over the phone. I didn't think anointing me with oil over the phone would work so well, you know? So they just prayed for me. I was hoping that would work. And, and it was amazing. Like, seriously, as they were praying for me, like, I could just feel a shift in my spirit. Like, I could... All I can see is it felt really good. And I began to feel like a change in my health. And, um, man, that did it for me. Like, I'm sold. Man, Yaakov is right. That's the way to go about things, you know. So let's grow in that together.
1: Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. The Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 he said "Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher so if you're being taught the word by us we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we're giving you for free that way we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us, and you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at chronomessiah.com, and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.